to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Sarah. And I'm Ben. And we have a very special episode for you today. Yes. <laughs> uh, listener, if you are new to the podcast, you might notice that every so often our numbering changes and it'll say like episode 54B or something like that. Yeah. And these are what we call insert episodes. It's for when stuff has slipped through the cracks and we've missed stuff from earlier because the goal of the show is to watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order and sometimes you found out that you missed one. So when we have to go back and do that, uh, we don't have to, but when we choose to go back and do that, uh, we make it so that the episode numbering is still chronological. Yeah, so that is why today's episode is episode 3... B, yes. Because we are going all the way back to 1916. Yes. And and the reason this happened was because the next episode in the regular sequence is 1949's The Queen of Spades. And I had actually never heard of that movie until it came up in research for the show and what was coming up next, which is really unusual because I'm pretty knowledgeable about 1940s horror movies it's apparently like a really well-regarded film, like this big classic, and I had just like never heard of it ever. And not only had I not heard of this movie, but I hadn't heard of the short story it was based on. So I'm doing my research for this 1949 film and finding out that the short story is not only really popular, but it has a bunch of adaptations that predate the 1949 film. And some of these adaptations, specifically a 1916 feature film version were available to watch and were indeed, you know, considered horror movies for the context of the period they were released into. Uh, So it became clear we should really go back and watch this earlier version before heading into the 1949 version. Yeah. Now, listener, if you are instead listening to episodes in numerical order and you just got finished listening to episode three, uh, then you contextually are in the best place right now (laughs) uh, to really enjoy this movie along with us uh, because we're having to set our minds way back to those days. Um, Episode three, just before this, was The Avenging Conscience from D.W. Griffith. But I think the film that this movie, just from what little research I've done, is going to feel the most like is 1913's The Student of Prague uh, by Paul Wigner, which was the subject of episode two. Yeah, the first full horror movie. Yeah, the first feature-length horror movie, yeah. Yeah. I think there's a lot of similarities going on between that film and this one, at least in terms of like the base source material stories. Funny enough, there's some similarities between The Student of Prague's story And the life of the Queen of Spades author, Alexander Pushkin. Interesting. Well, why don't you tell me more about the original short story and the author? Absolutely. Alexander Pushkin is Russian. Right. I think this is our first Russian movie. Yes. I think so. Yes. 
Pushkin was born in 1799 into a Russian noble family. This wealth allowed him to foster a love of writing and published his first poem at 15. When he graduated from the Tsartskoy Cielo Lyceum, which is like a university, uh, he recited the poem Ode to Liberty, which got him into some hot water with authorities. Mm-hmm. And uh, that included um, being exiled for a few years by Tsar Alexander I. Okay. Uh, throughout his life, he would have periods of house arrest, exiles, and uh, just periods of not being allowed to publish. Sure. During this time, Pushkin would write poetry, short stories, plays, what we would now call novels. Mm-hmm. Novels weren't really a thing yet. Um, and more. So he wrote everything. Sure. His style and use of language make him notable in Russian literature, and many describe him as the father of Russian literature. Interesting. Yes. Um, some of his most notable works include that Ode to Liberty poem. There's actually a painting of him reciting it to uh, his like graduating class, because it was such like a spectacle. I see. Uh, his most famous play is Boris Godunov, uh, written in 1825, published in 1831, and finally allowed to be performed in 1866. <laughs> um, a lyrical novel, Eugene Onegin, uh, which was published serially between 1825 to 32. And like I said, that's a lyrical novel, because like I said, novels don't quite exist, but also it was all in... Uh, like a long poem sure. type of thing, and is like the best example of what's become known as the Pushkin Sonnet. Okay. And uh, he started a journal called the Contemporary, that's the uh, English name, mm-hmm. um, that ran in St. Petersburg from 1836 to 66. I think what's interesting about Pushkin is it seems like a big part of why he's notable in Russia is because he brought a lot of the European influence and solidified that into Russian literature. Um, his work was heavily inspired by uh, the Romantics um, and other European trends, but his work left Russia and was really influential on a lot of, I guess what I'll call, like Western European people. For example, Henry James who is the creator of the novel. Hmm. So it's interesting to see him like bringing these European literature ideas into Russian literature, but then he himself becoming popular in wider Europe and being influential as well, this kind of like circuit. Yeah, and kind of like blending of, of uh, styles. Mm-hmm. Um, another example is uh, he wrote the short drama Mozart and Salieri, which was the inspiration for Peter Schaffer's Amadeus. Oh, okay, that's, that's cool. Pushkin also inspired operas from Russian composers, mm-hmm. uh, most notably Tchaikovsky, who wrote an opera in 1879 based on the Eugene Onegin novel, mm-hmm. and Queen of Spades in 1890 both of which really popularized Pushkin's work past Russia's borders to the point where those operas were more famous than their original pieces of work. Hmm. 
Pushkin died at age 37 in 1837 uh, from injuries related to a duel with his brother-in-law. I see. Now, this is why it ties into Steen of Prague. They weren't dueling with swords, though. They were dueling with pistols. Right. It's actually quite a, um, quite a scandal. I see. Tell me more. <laughs> so, Pushkin's brother-in-law is um, the French general Georges Charles de Hecarin Danse. So Georges, as I will be calling him, was rumored to be having an affair with Pushkin's wife, Natalia. And this guy is Pushkin's brother-in-law? He married Pushkin's sister right. to kind of like cover up that he was having an affair. With Pushkin's wife. Yes. But then oh, the affair okay. the affair kind of continued after right. the, that okay. marriage. Yeah. Um and things, you know, between Pushkin and George would kind of come to blows several times, but always would be de escalated. And then finally a Strongly worded letter to Pushkin from George was the last straw, and he's like, "Fuck this, let's duel." It's time to duel. Pushkin was shot in the stomach, and George was shot in the arm. So they were both wounded, but Pushkin died two days later. Yeah, you can amputate an arm if it gets infected. Uh, you can't amputate a stomach. No, yeah. A, a shot to the stomach in like 1830-something. That's that's some fatal stuff right there. Yeah. And that's why he died at 37 years old. Mm-hmm. So that's Pushkin. Yeah. Uh, what's the deal with this story that is so famous that, like, Tchaikovsky wrote an opera about it and stuff? Sure. So it's a short story, and it features the main character, Herman who is a German. Herman the German. And uh, he is an engineer in the Imperial Russian Army. A few of his fellow officers gamble. Herman would never do that, though. And one of the fellow officers shares the story of his grandmother, an elderly countess, winning back her fortune through a game of Pharaoh with the secret of the three winning cards. Okay. Uh, Pharaoh is a card game. Mm -hmm. I'll explain it a little bit later. Mm -hmm. And this secret of the three winning cards is apparently a secret that this grandmother learned from uh, the real-life figure of Count St. Germain, Mm -hmm. who I looked into a bit of a charlatan, it seems like. He's kind of like a 19th century Aleister Crowley type. That's exactly it. That's exactly it. That's how I was going to describe him. Did you peek at my notes? No. To give you an idea, uh, Voltaire called him the Wonder Man. Okay. Because his background was never clarified. He would claim at times to be the son of Prince Francis II of Transylvania. Okay. But that could never be confirmed nor denied. <laughs> um, he would have many names. He was under suspicion of espionage. He had an interest in philosophy, alchemy, science. He would write music. He wrote some, like, minor literature, philosophy, mystic theories. He was into mysticism. And, you know, he's described as a, quote, European adventurer. Mm -hmm. But that's not in the same way that you think of, like, an explorer 
or like no. an adventure in like the jungle. No, no, no. He just liked to travel to different courts and high societies. He's an adventurer in the sense that he has adventures, but like he's more of like a rapscallion. Yes. A rogue. Yeah. Yeah. So that's him. I think, like, especially the role that he plays in the short story is exactly like Aleister Crowley, but in the 1700s. Right. Because Aleister Crowley's in, like, the 1800s. Right. I mean, Aleister Crowley lived into the 20th century, but I, I get what you're saying. Speaking of, like, when this guy was born and stuff, wasn't it, like, weren't, peop- weren't there people who, like, believed he was immortal and stuff? So he would say, like, I'm 500 years old (laughs) as, like, a way to deflect people actually finding out what his background was. People are like, hey, where were you born? And he's like, was I born? Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. So he's he's a rapscallion, uh, a charlatan. Like, there's no way to confirm where he was actually born, where he got his education. But he was able to get into these high societies when he died, uh, they actually wound up having to auction off his stuff because no one came to claim it. <laughs> um, and then there was an author, Gene Fuller, who was doing like research about this guy. Um, and she found that what was listed as his estate when he died uh, was like normal stuff like clothing, receipts. Um, he had some cash lying around, but there was nothing like jewelry or um items from traveling there were no letters of correspondence so in other words his estate when he died was like what he had on him yeah like no no like holdings of land or something exactly like essentially so like is this guy even a real count no definitely not (laughs) because like at the time people like to take on different names like Mm -hmm. count saint germain Mm -hmm. um Without actually necessarily being a count. Okay. And that was, like, just an accepted custom. And so that's why someone who might not actually have any, um, quote-unquote, legitimate uh, avenues into high society, mm-hmm. like being born into a rich family or whatever, um, that, I think that's why he was able to sneak in. Mm. But according to the story, The Queen of Spades, this rich old countess learns the secret of three cards for Pharaoh. Mm-hmm. Now, like I said, Herman is not a gambler, but he just becomes obsessed with this story and needing to find out what the three-card secret is. Right. It's like someone who's like, oh, like, I'd never buy a lotto ticket. And then, like, they read about some, like, perfect lotto system that never fails, and suddenly they're out buying lotto tickets. Exactly. So he seeks out this countess, who is now in her late 80s, and he gains entry to her house by writing love letters to her young ward, Lizavietta. Okay. Once inside the building, <laughs> uh, Herman confronts the countess and demands this secret, who tries to explain, no, that's, that story was actually just a joke. Right. Um, and then again is like, no, like, th- this wasn't real. Like, it's calm down. It's fine. Like, th- this, this was just a fun thing. He doesn't believe her, and he pulls a gun on her and says, Give me the goddamn secret, bitch. <laughs> that escalated quickly. And she dies of fright. I mean, yeah, she's like 80, dude. Exactly. Later, Herman attends the funeral, 
and swears. <laughs> the least he could do. <laughs> really. And he swears that the Countess's eyes are looking right at him. Ooh, open casket funerals are a little, uh, spooky. That night, her ghost appears to Herman and tells him the three-card secret. When playing Pharaoh, you want to bet on three, then seven, then the ace. Okay. She tells him, I'll give you the secret, and you can go and gamble, but only gamble once per night. So, like, one game per night. Mm-hmm. And after, you have to marry Liza Vieta. Okay. So, Herman goes to the gambling den. The first night, bets on the three, he wins. Second night, he bets on the seven, he wins. So, third night, he goes to bet everything on the ace. But on this third night, when the card is shown, he sees that he actually bet on the queen of spades. Hmm. And looking at the queen, she resembles the countess and winks at him. And he runs screaming off into the night. Wait, so was ace the winning card that was drawn still, though? Yes, but his bet uh, was supernaturally moved to the queen. Huh. So he lost everything. Then there's an epilogue where we learn that Liza Vieta is happily married to a state official. And Herman is in an asylum and repeats the words to himself, three, seven, ace, three, seven, queen. Okay. That's the end. That's a fun little story. To briefly explain Pharaoh. Okay. Apparently it's easy to understand. It was a little confusing to me, but... Basically, we have a suit of cards, typically spades, um, laid out on the table from, like, king all the way down to ace. Ace is low. Okay. Then you have a full 52-card deck, and the dealer will pull a card. The first one, uh, let's say it's, like, the five. And if you bet on the five, you've lost. But the second card he pulls, let's say it's the ace, Whoever bet on the ace wins. Hmm. The cards that he draws get like put aside but remain face up. Okay. So you can start to see, like, oh, there's three kings that have been pulled, so betting on a king to show up next is going to be too risky, so I'll bet on something else. Hmm. Um, and that's what you do. There's, huh. there's a little bit more complex things as you get down to like the final cards, but that's basically it. Weird so, game. Yeah. I mean, I guess before the invention of slot machines, it's pretty much the same idea. Just like, it's a completely random... Well, there's a little bit of strategy, but it's a close to random betting sort of thing. And you are able to count, because, yeah. like, the cards do remain facing upward. Um, in the case of the short story, it sounds like, like I said, his bet was put on the ace, or what he thought was the ace, and it turned out to be the queen. Hmm. Um, and because spades is the suit that's laid out, if you bet on the queen of spades. Yeah. Um, but because the ace was pulled as the winning card, he lost. Mm -hmm. So that's the story. Um, definitely has, like you said, similarities to the student of Prague. Um, there's no like outright devil right. in the story, but there's clearly like a supernatural mystical element to it. Um, and some like revenge from, uh, the countess on... Herman, and definitely a bit of that, like, uh, be careful of your own greed, because he keeps betting. Yeah, and, like, it's sort of the same kind of milieu, like, 
young man, army officer, like, has kind of like a, like a fake romance with some young girl in the story, and like, has like a supernatural thing occur to him that like, is good at first, but goes bad, and it all ends up as like, kind of a morality tale. Yeah. Yeah. So, you said that this got adapted into an opera by Tchaikovsky. Yeah. Uh, the first film version of The Queen of Spades, which is Pikovaya Dama in Russian, was based on the opera as opposed to the short story, mm. which is funny because the first film version was from 1910 and was a silent short film. And I can't really think of anything that's the more opposite of opera than silent and short. Um <laughs> But apparently there's significant differences between the opera's plot and the short story's plot, so that's why you can identify that version as being based on the opera. From what I understand, the 1910 version doesn't exist anymore. Um, the second film version was what we're watching today, the 1916 version, uh, which is a feature film, uh, at least by 1916 standards of feature. It's a little over an hour long. And this adaptation uh, has been noted for its high production values, its innovative directorial technique, and apparently its psychological depth of acting. Uh, it's considered one of the best Russian films of the pre-revolutionary period uh, and uses what were at the time many innovative and non-standard techniques such as split screen, flashbacks, jump cuts, deep focus shots, uh, dissolves, etc., so when we're watching this, we know we're going to have to cast our minds back to that context of films like the Paul Wigner student of Prague, Avenging Conscience from Griffith, uh, those kind of early feature films. Uh, Pico Valladama was produced by Joseph Ermoliev, who was a major Russian studio owner of the period, uh, but who fled to France after the Russian Revolution. Uh, and then later came to the United States in 1937, again, still as a film producer, and he passed away in L.A. in 1962. The film is directed by Yakov Protozanov, who is considered one of the founding fathers of Russian cinema. He was born in 1881 to a family of merchants and graduated from Moscow Commercial College in 1900. But he was unhappy working as a merchant, and so he left Russia to basically tool around Europe and find himself for like a year. <laughs> uh, and then in 1906, he came back to Russia and joined the Gloria Film Company as a screenwriter and director's assistant. He later married the sister of one of that company's co-founders, and he began directing in 1910 uh, and moved to Ermoliev's studio in 1914. Now, this is back in the days when crews were still fairly small, so on a lot of his pictures, like, he wrote, he directed, sometimes he would be the one shooting, sometimes he'd also be editing, just like whatever hat needed to be worn at the time. Over the next six years, he wrote and directed 80 motion pictures, uh, including the critically acclaimed Queen of Spades in 1916, as well as the critically acclaimed Father Sergius in 1917. He would leave Russia with Ermoliev uh, in 1920, but Protozanov returned to Russia in 1923 and became acclaimed there as a great director of silent film comedies. Uh, his health declined during the period of the Second World War 
and he passed away in 1945. The film stars Ivan Mojikin uh, as Herman, and he was born to serfs in rural Russia in 1889, uh, but he was granted freedom as a reward for his father's loyal service. Uh, he studied law at Moscow State University, but left school in 1910 to join a troupe of traveling actors. By 1911, he was acting in films, including several films for Yakov Protozanov. Footage of Mojikin from this period was later used in montages by Russian film theorist Lev Kuleshov to demonstrate what would later become known as the Kuleshov effect, uh, which, listener, if you're not familiar with, what Kuleshov did was he would take, like, a shot of Mojikin just kind of impassively looking towards the camera and then intercut it with a shot of something else to demonstrate that the audience creates context for what the actor is feeling and thinking uh, when looking at a visual medium that is sort of devoid of what the actor may have actually been thinking about. So Mojikin looks into the distance. We cut to like a steak on a plate, and your brain goes, ah, he's staring at that steak because he's hungry. Or the exact same shot of Mojikin looking into the camera cut to like a graveyard and it's like, oh, he's sad because his mom died. Like, but it's the same footage every time. So that's the Kuleshov effect. Mojikin fled to France after the Russian Revolution, where he became one of the major stars of the silent French film scene, um, largely in kind of a stereotype as a like mysterious and exotic romantic lead. Sure. Um, he also wrote and directed many films during this period, however, some of which were highly innovative and experimental. A lot of, like, weird Kafka-esque psychological thriller type things. In 1927, Carl Lemley brought Mojikin to Hollywood, seeing him as a possible successor to Rudolph Valentino, who had passed away the previous year. Uh, he made a film for Universal called Surrender that teamed him up with Mary Philbin. But the movie was not successful because Lemley had ignored the differences in Mojikin's screen persona and Valentino's, and so ended up casting Mojikin in a role that he was ill-suited for. Both men had this screen persona of, like, exotic, irresistible lover. But Valentino's thing was, like, he's an asshole who you can't resist. Like, very dominating, very, like dismissive of the woman in the picture, but, like, ultimately he's just so charismatic and magnetic that, like, you want to be with him. Whereas Mojikin's thing was that he's, like, so charming and, like, disarms you with, like, how charming he is that you can't resist him, but it's not, like, a dominating kind of thing. Hmm, okay. Yeah, it's like, it's like Sean Connery James Bond versus Roger Moore James Bond. Sure, the rise of sound film hastened Mojikin's career decline due to his heavy Russian accent, and he passed away in 1939 in Paris of tuberculosis. So Pico Valladama was released in the Russian Empire on April 1st, 1916. It was highly critically acclaimed and very popular at the box office. It is now in the public domain, uh, and it's available on YouTube, so you'll be able to find it as part of the Scream Scene YouTube playlist. If you're looking for it on DVD, you can find it as part of like a set of Yakov Protozamov's pre-revolutionary films, 
which comprises volume 8 of the Milestone Cinematech's Early Russian Cinema Collection. Okay, cool. Is that a YouTube playlist organized based on, like, chronology as yes. well? Yes. Yeah. Okay, cool. So, so this will be, be like, like... right near the beginning. Exactly. Easy to find. Um, that playlist can be found again at our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss The Queen of Spades from 1916, directed by Yakov Protozenov. See you on the other side, everybody. everyone to Scream Scene. We just finished watching Picovaya Dama, or The Queen of Spades, from 1916, directed by Yakov Protozanov. Sarah, what did you think of this one? It's always tough kind of going back to silent film. Um, silent film is kind of an acquired taste, mm-hmm. uh, but I did enjoy it. Yeah, I was actually surprised how easily I was able to, like, get into this one and, like, stay focused on it and stay with it the whole time through. It didn't really, like, seem to drag too much or lose me uh, with, like, one exception. Uh, So, yeah, I thought this was quite good. Yeah. The storyline followed the short story, at least your outline of it, from the beginning pretty much exactly. I don't know if we really need to go over what happens in the movie. Is there anything, any key differences that you feel are worth pointing out because honestly I think like we just said the story outline at the start of the episode. Yeah honestly it's pretty much exactly the same. I will say that the game that they appear to be playing in the movie is not what Pharaoh seems to be at least the way it is understood now. I mean this is like a hundred years later so maybe the game's changed. Well, so, yeah, I was confused about this, too, because it didn't seem to match the description you gave in the context setting. So, like, after we watched the movie, I went away and, like, you know, tried to do my own research and just see if, like, it came down to how you had interpreted it and then explained it that I had misunderstood, maybe. So I, like, watched some videos and stuff, and, like, I guess it was, like, super popular in the 1800s. Like, and everything I saw was, like, here's how it was played in the 1800s. So, like, this didn't look anything like that. So I'm not really sure what was going on. There were parts of it that were kind of like Pharaoh, but like a more casual version where like the board wasn't set up properly. And, and the way it seemed almost like blackjack, where like you say to the dealer to, when to stop. Yeah, and also like he didn't seem to be playing with like a group of people. He was just like coming in and being like, hey, I'm betting on this and like just one-on-one-ing with the dealer and then like getting out. So I don't really know... What was going on there? It doesn't really change the story at all. It's no. the same thing where, like, he bets on the three and wins, and then the next night bets on the seven and wins, and then the next night bets on the ace, and the ace wins, but his card has, like, changed to the queen of spades, and he loses. Yeah, so it's all basically the same. I just thought it would be good to note. Yeah, I... Because, uh, listener, if you watch the film and you're like, oh, it's this game, please let me know. I am very curious. Yeah, or if, like you understand kind of what's going on here. Because the thing that it does change to me is that 
what seems to be happening is, you know, the dealer still has his, like, win pile and lose pile, like, in Pharaoh, and he's drawing cards, but, yeah, then, like, German, who, that's the name he has in the movie, is German, not Herman? Yeah, I think it's still Herman, though. Right. So he's got his card that he's picked, like, face down, and he knows it, and then, like, he tells the dealer to, like, stop at a certain point, and then draws his card, and it's the same as the card the dealer's on, which doesn't seem like a game to me, because, like, it has nothing to do with, like, knowing what the right card to play is. And it seemed like sometimes the card for the dealer was face down, and sometimes it was up. Yeah, and, like, if you just are telling the dealer to stop on the card you've already picked. Yeah. Like, yeah. Anyways, it doesn't matter. The only other thing that is slightly different is, um, so in the story epilogue, we get to see that Liza is happily married in her own life. Um, She completely disappears from the film once Herman German, German Herman, Mm -hmm. uh, goes off to go betting. Yeah, um, the movie also, like, I don't know if this stuff was in the short story or not, but, like, gives a little bit more detail in the flashbacks about, like, the Countess's early life. Uh, We see flashbacks to her betting and losing a bunch of money, and that's her motivation for, like, seeking out Count St. Germain to, like, get this information of how to always win. I think that's dramatized for the film. Yeah, I don't understand why Count St. Germain helps her. He doesn't seem to get anything in return. But one of you my take pity on a on a fancy lady, right? But usually you do that. Like if you're a rapscallion ne'er do well con artist, you do that for reasons. But like that's one of my problems with this version of the story is everyone's motivations seemed kind of weak throughout. Um, there's also like another section of the movie where we get like a flashback of the countess's just like romantic escapades when she was younger and that was the one part of the movie where like the pace seemed to drag and it seemed like they were kind of drawing things out for no reason to me they wanted to do that um reveal where like the countess is like dreaming of her younger days and frolicking around with a young man um and then she's awoken from the dream and the cut is matched when herman german comes in through the door. Yeah, it's, so it's they the young... So they wanted to do that, but they, like, reverse-engineered, like, to justify it. Yeah, it's that, like, he comes through the door just as in her dream the young man is coming through the door. But, yeah, I don't know. That was the one part of the movie that kind of lost me. Um, the rest of it, like, for a film of this era, I thought was quite good. The only other Russian silent films I've seen were Sergei Eisenstein's Strike and... Battleship Potemkin, but both of those are 1925, so, like, nearly 10 years after this. And, crucially, post-revolution. Yes, they are propaganda films. Like, they're very specifically Soviet films in this whole... and, And Soviet films of a particular era, really, of Soviet film, too, where, like, they were trying so desperately to, like, be like, well, all culture before now was bourgeois culture, and we need to figure out what, like, communist culture looks like. So we're going to make movies in a totally different way that, like, doesn't give a shit about, like, people or characters. And this movie is just, you know, a regular story with people and characters. Yeah, I think that this film definitely would be taken as example of bourgeois film. Yes. Because uh, it has so much production value mm-hmm. into it. It Like, when we have the flashbacks of the Countess in Versailles, yeah. and it's, like, powdered wigs and all that jazz, and in, I guess, like, 
modern day Russia, St. Petersburg, like we have a lot of production value in terms of costumes and extras and props. And sets and the streets and the carriages. Like, the movie looks really good. Yeah. Um, I think the acting was quite good. Yeah, it's really well done. It's not overblown like you see with, like, Griffith. They've got the silent movie makeup, and everything that they are doing is quite dramatic. But the feeling I got is that they're like... These people came across as real people with real emotions. They just express those emotions very intensely, as opposed to that feeling you sometimes get from silent movies where they feel more like performers who are exaggerating in order to communicate story points to you, right? Yes. Like, if you were to give these people sound dialogue, right, these people would just be like, oh, I'm just so poor, as opposed to like, oh... I'm just so poor. You know what I mean? Like, I don't Absolutely. know how to communicate that well in audio, but... No, I think you did it well. Mm-hmm. I also thought it was very cool where we had some neat... I, I guess you would call them film effects, where we have some split-screening crossfades. Um, when we see the, the Countess's face as the Queen of Spades... They basically have a close-up on the card, but the face is cut out, and the woman is, like, in the back, but perfectly in that spot. Yeah. It's not, like, a um, a matting or anything no. like that. So I thought it was, you know, that's one way to get her face in there. Oddly <laughs> but enough... But it, it worked. Oddly enough, like, there were a lot of good effects being used to indicate, like, what was on people's minds or what people are talking about or what their state of mind is... But once the actual supernatural stuff started coming in, honestly, those scenes and effects are the ones that kind of, like, let me down the most in the movie. Sure. Yeah, we have a couple of um, jump cuts Mm -hmm. when Herman German starts going insane. Uh, At one point, he's, like, posed and... um, Suddenly he's in a web with a very dinky-looking spider. Um, And then you also see, like, some of the paintings turn into giant cards of, like, the Ace of Spades or whatever the fuck. It's just, like, so it does take a while for this movie to get to the supernatural stuff. Like, the part of the movie that has the most time given to it, you know, in terms of adapting the short story, the method that they've taken is to expand the short story rather than have the short story be, like one scene in a larger new story, right? So what we get is, like, the full tale of the Countess's backstory, like, fully dramatized. And then we get, like, German's obsession with suddenly wanting to win at cards and win at gambling, like, fully dramatized, like, that arc of him becoming obsessed. And then, like, the full process of him, like, wooing Liza so that eventually he can get access to the Countess's house, which... He ends up getting in, like, in a secret way anyways. So, like, I don't understand why he needed to woo Liza anyways, because he still sneaks into the house. It's just he's been invited to sneak in by Liza. So, it anyways. And we get, Maybe like... it's, like, a cover story, so people right. don't know that he knows a secret. Right. But, like, so all of the stuff leading up to him asking for the secret is, like, really extended out. You know, and then he accidentally is the cause of the Countess's death by brandishing the gun. And then we get, like, you know, his guilt after that and his despair. And it's, like, I think 50 minutes 
into this 64-minute movie that the Countess's ghost shows up. Yeah. And the actress who plays the Countess just walks into the room. I mean, her face is done up, and then yeah. when she leaves, she fades away. Yeah, but it's still like she walks in and is just like totally solid. There's no real effect on her other than, as you say, some makeup that's just sort of like some like gaunt sort of makeup. And she's very corporeal. You, she fades away, yes, but she walks away and then fades out at, like, the door. Like, it's a little bit disappointing in terms of giving, like, some spookiness. And then, like, as you say, when the Countess's face is on the card, the effect is they've cut out the card's face and are holding it over her, which is, like, clever, but it is, like, a little more goofy than spooky. And then, yeah, like, he's going mad, so he imagines himself in a web, and it has this, like, fake dollar store spider, and then, like, he's in the asylum at the end, and, like, this is all happening very rapidly at this point. Like, all of the stuff with him playing the games and losing and going mad is the last 15 minutes of this film, and he's in the insane asylum, and there's just, like, ghostly images of the cards sort of off to one side and then there is like a ghostly image of like the countess slowly approaching and then the film just stops yeah the end yeah that last bit was kind of neat because the cards are moving in like a stop motion kind of way mm. um and then the, the woman approaching as like a ghost it was kind of like a strong ending i think like that last scene i think is strong but i agree with what you're saying I think maybe they started to run out of time because <laughs> I know a lot of these techniques take a lot of time and a lot of planning. I think also it's important to remember as we think of this film that like the horror genre didn't exist. Yeah. So we're looking at this and being like, man, you didn't get to the good stuff until way late and you didn't really emphasize it that much. And it's like, well, who's to say that that's what the filmmakers cared about? You know, when we think back to the original Student of Prague from 1913 and compare it to, like, the 1926 Student of Prague and where the emphases have shifted, the thing I remember about Wigner's Student of Prague is it starts with a title card that's something along the lines of, like, a romantic melodrama in four acts or whatever, right? Yeah, that's true. This film does start with, once upon a time, they were playing cards. Yes. Which is a fun thing. I think that, like... Speaking of the acting style from before, the film's overall style feels like that to me, where it's, like, realistic but enhanced. Like, the lighting is all very good, and it's stark, and has these memorable images, but it's not expressionistic. Yeah, it's not artificial. Yeah, it's just sort of choosing the framing and the angles and the blocking to give everything a very, like, chiaroscuro, painterly kind of style, and there is very good blocking and framing throughout this movie. Like, the camera's mostly static. There's one moving camera shot, but mostly it's static and locked off, as you'd expect from a film of this era, but the blocking and the framing is being done so that, like, it's not boring looking. Yeah, it's kind of interesting to to compare what Protozanov is doing as a director and compare it to what Griffith was doing at the same time in America. Right where Griffith, obviously, you know, you can put a lot to his name in terms of what he, uh, of, of the styles that he started mm -hmm. and um, solidified as styles. Mm -hmm. But there's almost a feeling of, like, Protozanov clearly having an eye towards blocking, an eye toward, like, a painterly eye mm -hmm. versus Griffith having 
a cinematic eye. Yeah. Yeah. I think that what Protozonov ends up doing here is he is more successful than a feeling of just filming a stage play. Yeah. Because he's recognizing how he has control over the image in a way that you don't on stage. Um, but he's not quite thinking in terms of like close-ups or shot reverse shot or that kind of stuff yet, yeah. right? There, He is starting to, mm-hmm. though. Like you see it with the way that we're cutting between, like even between the lever coming through the door and Herman German coming yes. through the door. Yes, he realizes the potential of editing, I think, very well. Yeah, I think actually, yeah, that speaks to why he did so well with like the split screen to mm-hmm. show like internal feelings and and things because that is an editing technique rather than a well I guess that you could say like shot reverse shot is an editing technique but editing I think you said it best with the cinematic eye versus painterly eye yes because even with what Protozanov is doing it's still like transitions yeah. right yeah rather it, than like storytelling one of the things that makes film different from paintings or you know other media Uh, theater is the juxtaposition of images which is kind of ironic because we explained the Kuleshov effect earlier in this episode yeah but it's about how different images can relate to one another and the way that your mind will connect them and when Perzanov is doing that in this movie it's always between like one scene and another like between two different unrelated things so it's like using a split screen to show us what German is thinking about or using a match cut to transition us from the past to the present, or using a dissolve to show us that someone is telling a story. Mm -hmm. Where he's not using it is within the same scene in the same moment. He's not cutting from German to the Countess's ghost in like two different shots. He's got them in the same shot, right? He's not using cinema within a scene. He's using it to get between scenes or ideas. Yeah. So it's it's interesting to think about both directors clearly have a style and a way of creating things, and they're fairly contemporary, but they are separated across the world from each other. Exactly, yeah. Um, speaking of being separated from different film trends, this was an interesting film to watch also because we were talking about the 1913 student of Prague, We've brought up the 1914 Avenging Conscience. I think you could also bring up the 1920 Jekyll and Hyde. Mm -hmm, Yeah, I actually thought about the 1920 Jekyll and Hyde a lot when watching this. Yeah, because this also came up when I was looking at when ranking. Mm -hmm. Because I was like, okay, well, let's look at where this 1913 Sin of Prague is. Oh, it's at like 60 or whatever. Yeah. And then I looked at Avenging Conscience, and it's in like the 100s. Yes. And I started to wonder, you know, I knew that German films were kind of weighted to do better on the mm-hmm. list in in terms of, like, how good they are in horror because the development of German expressionism and shadows led to our understanding of horror today. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. how horror is constructed, um, even, like, up into, like, the 1940s. But those same trends haven't happened in the U.S. and haven't happened in Russia yet. Yes, exactly. So it's interesting to think about how these films are happening at the same time. One of them, or a few of them that are happening in Germany, are doing better because of like the particular 
trends happening to them or happening at the same time. Right. Like, and when you think of, say, like, American horror movies and their development, you have these, like, kind of, like, reaching grasps like the 20 Jekyll and Hyde or um, Avenging Conscience or, like, the monster or, like, the bat. Yeah. Where it's, like, you're not quite there yet. And what makes it suddenly click is in, like, 27 with Cat and the Canary where Carl Emley brings an expressionist filmmaker over and those elements start being added into the American horror scene, right? Yeah. And it's that cross-pollination of all these different elements coming together that's making it work. Um, But I think that, like, for all of the ways that this movie shoves all of its supernatural stuff to the end. Yeah. Um, you know, within the context of those movies, this is proto-horror in the same way that the 1913 Student of Prague is proto-horror or the same way that the 1920 Jekyll and Hyde is proto-horror. So I think it does belong on the list ranked. Absolutely. Um, I think the way that Queen of Spades is using light it's not in the same way as German Expressionism, obviously, but they are still using light in a very specific way, in the way that they are lighting people. It's not just, like, three-point lighting or, like, stage lighting. Like, um, What makes the movie successful leading up to the supernatural stuff and makes the supernatural stuff feel part of the story still is that the movie is using its lighting to create atmosphere and it's a consistent atmosphere throughout that lets you know that like things are going to get dire eventually. And the other thing that is contributing to that atmosphere is the music. Mm, The music is consistent all the way through. It has a solid theme that Mm -hmm. is used all the way through and it kind of morphs and changes, but it's still the same thing. We don't get any kind of change towards, like, romantic motif because mm-hmm. Liza's in this scene. Yeah. There was, it was all consistent and all, like, a dread kind of feeling. Yeah. So this is just my way of saying that, like, their efforts towards creating that tension and creating a horror film should be acknowledged. I don't think this was, like, a dramatic film that happened to be categorized as horror. I think this is a horror movie I don't know if they would have had the words to say that this was going to be a horror movie, but they were clearly going for a horrific mood. Yeah, I think the contemporary understanding of this story would be it's a ghost story. Yeah. Right? Like a campfire ghost story, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, so I think I think we should look at ranking this. I will say that, like, you know, this movie just feels, and this story feels so comparable with Student of Prague, that the one thing I do regret is... Student of Prague, we have that 1913 version, and then we have that, like, 1926, like, super expressionistic version with Conrad Veidt. And then we have the 1935 uh, German version with Anton Walbrook uh, that's, like, less expressionistic and more just, like, standard cinema telling of the story. Um, or, like, what you would think of as standard classic cinema. Um, with this, uh, Queen of Spades, there's this 1916 early version... Then there is a 1926 German expressionist version that, from what I understand, like, isn't lost. It just doesn't have any home video release. There's no Mm. way to watch it. It's, you know, maybe in an archive somewhere in Germany, but, like, it's not available for us to really look at for the list in any way. The only evidence I can find online of its existence is it's mentioned in a few sources here and there, and you can find 
a still of the star of the movie online. Okay. Um, so that is unfortunate because that's sort of a missing link that attaches to, like, the Conrad Veidt version because then the third version of Queen of Spades that we'll be watching for the program is this 1949 version from Britain that's very standard classic cinema that stars Anton Walbrook. Okay. So I'm, 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 I'm sorry that we're missing the middle piece in the evolution of this movie when we have all three pieces in the evolution of Student of Prague. Yeah. But before we get there, ranking. Yes. It was obviously going to be a tough thing to rank. Yeah. Queen of Spades. I have kind of an area, but it is a bit of a wide range. Oh, interesting. I have a precise spot picked out. Okay, well, let me do my wide range first, and then we'll go in. Absolutely. Okay, let me let me walk you through this. So when I was yeah. first looking to rank, I was like, it didn't feel fair to compare Queen of Spades to German Expressionist films like the 1913 Student of Prague because of the way that German films are weighted, like mm. I mentioned before. So I thought that a good place to start was looking at Avenging Conscience, which is currently at 110. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we rag on Avenging Conscience a bit because it has, like, that one scene that's very uh, Edgar Allan Poe with, like, the ticking clock and yeah. the, you know, the, not exactly, but, like, the heart beneath the floorboards kind of feel. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are other moments in Avenging Conscience that are weird and creepy, like yes. seeing a wasp get eaten by a bug or something like that. Yeah, and some of the ghost effects are really well done in that movie, like just the ghost coming out of the wall at the guy and stuff. Yeah, so I wasn't really sure, but looking above Avenging Conscience, I got to Mummy's Curse from 1944. It's ranked at 104, and I was like, okay, I don't know. I feel like Queen of Spades could be better than Mummy's Curse, but the face of marble is right above that, and the face of marble is so bonkers wild. I was like, can you imagine if... (laughs) Protozanov tried to make Face of Marble <clears throat> in Russian cinema, like Ghost Vampire Dog. How would you even do that? So that was kind of my my ceiling, and then like looking down, I stopped at around one fourteen with Jungle Captive, because that's just a bad movie. But above that is Sung at Midnight, um, nineteen thirty seven Chinese cinema, early Chinese cinema, and I thought it was possibly comparable, but that I would probably want to put Queen of Spades at or above that. So that's kind of my range, 104 to 114. Okay, my spot that I picked out is above your range, but not far above your range. I went through a similar thought process. I was thinking, okay, I the fair thing to do is to judge this movie against movies of the era on the list, right? Like, I can't think about, like, What's this like compared to, uh, like, the 1932 Jekyll and Hyde over here at number one? Like, I can't do that, right? So I'm thinking, okay, well, if we had ranked this in sequence, we would have just done Student of Prague and Avenging Conscience. So I'm looking where the 1913 Student of Prague is, and it's up at 60, and it's like, okay, this can't go that high. Uh, This isn't better than, like, Dr. X, you know? Uh, So then it's like, okay, where's Avenging Conscience? So I go all the way down, same as you. And I find Avenging Conscience... 
And I'm like, okay, well, looking above Avenging Conscience, what do we have? Because I decided this was better than Avenging Conscience for the reason that all of the horror stuff in Avenging Conscience ends up being it's all a dream. That is true. The entire movie pretty much ends up, like, even the bug-eating stuff at the start. Like, he falls asleep in the park or whatever at the start of the movie, and, like, the whole damn thing up to the, like, dark ending all turns out to be a dream. Whereas the advantage that Queen of Spades has is, like, I'm not saying that Russians don't do comedy, but the thing that Russians tend to do is not, like, mix comedy or or drama or, like, like, what I'm trying to say is that when the Russians have decided they're going to take something seriously, they are taking it seriously. Like, there isn't a lot of, like, pulling the rug out from under you, you know, in Russian stuff where it's like, oh, actually... None of those people died horribly. The story actually has a happy ending. Like, yeah. the Russians will do a tragic ending, uh, you know, without being asked. So I felt Queen of Spades sort of treated its horror material more seriously and deserved to go above Avenging Conscience for that. So I started looking above that, and I just got lambasted with a bunch of movies that are poorly made. And, like, Queen of Spades is primitive, but we have identified that, like, it is very well made for its time. Like, it stands out as being, like, you know, if you have the limitations of making a movie in 1916, this is playing to those limitations as best you can. And so I felt like I couldn't put it, you know, beneath, like, all these damn mummy movies and Jungle Woman and just this, like, B-movie schlock that's here. And, like, Face of Marble is wild, but Face of Marble isn't, like coherent or like good (laughs) like it's a it's a crazy bonkers movie but like the storyline is nonsense so where i ended up was right around here is the 1920 jekyll and hyde which i felt was very comparable and which i was always thinking about watching this movie and is also from like comparable era yeah and i thought 1920 jekyll and hyde goes above this because it is more consistently horrific and menacing all the way through than this movie is. This movie has that consistent atmosphere of dread, but, like, we don't really know where the horror is until, like, an you know, until 45 minutes into this 60-minute movie, right? Whereas Jekyll and Hyde, like, he transforms, he's doing bad guy stuff, uh, you know, he's is having... Is the one where, like, that spider shows he has up a, on his back? He has a spider dream, just like this guy does, but this guy's spider dream is, like, three minutes before the movie ends, whereas, like, Jekyll and Hyde has that spider dream way sooner. Like, it has a way more gruesome and horrific ending. Like, this guy ends up in an insane asylum. The 1920 Jekyll and Hyde, he ends up, like, killing everybody and then killing himself, right? So I figured this was not as good. But it's better than The Devil Bat, which is a fun but pretty ridiculous movie. So the spot I picked out was exactly the new number 100. Love it. I agree. Okay, so entering the list at the new number 100 is Picovaya Dama, or The Queen of Spades, from 1916, directed by Yakov Protozoov. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find links to the other episodes we've mentioned today, as well as our appeals box. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, you can drop us a line through our ask box, you can email us at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com, or you can reach us through Twitter at underscore screamscene. Screamscene updates every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, 
SoundCloud, and Spotify. You can subscribe to the show using our RSS feed and get us on whatever podcatcher you prefer. What would really help us out is if you went to the service that you use and gave us a rating or a review. It doesn't have to be an in-depth analysis, just, hey, I like this show. It really helps out because those are the things that our computer overlords use to determine whether other people should be able to listen and find our show easily. You can also help us out, though, just by directly telling other people about us, retweeting the episodes when they go up on Twitter, for example. And if you'd really like to give us a hand, heading over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash screamscenepodcast, where you can become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month. And at the higher levels of 5 and $10, get access to the bonus content we put out, like the amazing bonus audio from each and every episode that goes up once a week on Mondays. So that's patreon.com slash screamscenepodcast. So we've kind of already said it, but what are we watching next week, Ben? Yeah, so next week we're going back to the future and hitting up the... We're going back to the future! Marty, get in the car, Marty! It's your kids, Marty! Uh... It's your kids! Oh, it's it's like, it's like Christopher Lloyd is right in the room with me. <laughs> uh, yeah, we're heading to 1949 for the British version of The Queen of Spades, starring Anton Walbrook, that is apparently, according to Martin Scorsese, one of the few true classics of supernatural cinema. High praise. Mm-hmm. Not as high as our praise. Yeah, we'll, we'll see where things really stand, Marty. Yeah, listen, Marty. It's your film criticism, Marty. We will see you next week, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye. Bye.